Hello, everyone, and welcome to How to Navigate Successfully Through Workplaces Shaped by Subtle Bias. We'd like to welcome those of you participating who are not currently members of the Society of Women Engineers, or SWE. SWE is more than 28,000 members strong today and includes both collegiate and professional members across many sections and regions. SWE's value is delivered through its strong communities, conferences, and seminars, our networking and mentoring opportunities, national recognition programs, and K-12 outreach education. For more information on the Society, please feel free to visit our website at www.swe.org. It is now my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Joan C. Williams. She is a prize-winning author and leading expert on work and family issues. She's also the author of Unbending Gender, Why Family and Work Conflict, and What to Do About It. This won the 2000 Gustavius Myers Outstanding Book Award and Reshaping the Work-Family Debate, Why Men and Class Matter. Called something of a rock star in her field by the New York Times Magazine, Williams has been successful in reaching extraordinary diverse audiences and has been quoted in sources as diverse as the Washington Post, Red Book, the Wall Street Journal, Human Resources Executive, Oprah Magazine, and the Yale Law Review. A frequent guest on radio and television, she has taught at Harvard and the University of Virginia Law Schools and is currently Distinguished Professor, Hastings Foundation Chair, and Founding Director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings College of Law. Joan, when you're ready, the floor is all yours. I'm delighted to be here today. Um, I'm going to be talking about a book that I wrote with my daughter called What Works for Women at Work. I started this book because I've been working on organizational change around gender issues for over 20 years. And you know what? The organizations aren't changing fast enough. So I decided that I was just going to give women advice about how to navigate workplaces uh, shaped by subtle bias. So the talk today will be from the book. It will also be from a report that's actually released as of now. It's called Double Jeopardy. Gender Bias Against Women of Color in STEM. It, you can download it at the Tools for Change in STEM <clears throat> website. This is one of the very first time in which women of color have been asked about gender bias. And um, I will talk a little bit about it. Um, the women of color experience each of the patterns of gender bias we're going to talk about, but they experience them in somewhat different ways and I will be talking about that in the course of this webinar. Please do visit, though, Tools for Change in STEM. has a tremendous number of online workshops that are designed to address gender bias in STEM and aid in work life and creating family-friendly workplaces. Okay, here is the What Works for Women at Work study. What I did is something that had never been done before. I did an extensive literature review of experimental social psychology, now 40 years old, that documents specific patterns of gender bias in the lab. So I took that, formed a protocol from that literature review, and I asked a very simple question to highly successful women. I asked them, this is what the the social scientists found in the lab, any of that sound familiar? And then I asked, what strategies have worked for you? I interviewed 100, we interviewed 127 highly successful women with the help of a National Science Foundation grant. 60 of those were women of color in science. We oversampled women of color, um, the over half of the total sample was women of color. Now, if you just ask women, working women, do you believe gender bias exists? About 68% say yes. But one of the key value adds that this, the, the What Works for Women at Work book provides is that gender bias comes in four very different flavors. And as you can see, the incidence of gender bias is different depending on the type of gender bias. Here they are, and I will go through them one by one. The first type of gender bias 
I call prove it again bias. And as you can see, 68% of the women we interviewed reported it. We also did for the Jebel Jeopardy report with the help of AWES, a survey of over 550 women in STEM and found that about two-thirds of them reported prove it again bias. Prove it again bias stems from the perceived lack of fit between women and being a scientist or other high status traditionally male jobs. So you see there if you, uh, the children's drawings. If you ask most people to imagine a scientist, their automatic association will be with a white man. Um, consequently, women need to perform better than men to be judged equally competent because we don't fit that automatic image. So women need to provide more evidence of competence than men in order to be seen as equally competent. Here's an example from academia. And it's example, and an example of one of the most common types of prove-it-again bias namely that men tend to be judged on their potential, women on their accomplishments. The technical name for this is attribution bias. Here's an example. She is lazy or not tenurable material. He is engaged in research that will take longer to reach the publication world. So both of these scientists lack publications, but the man is judged on his potential, and so he's golden, the woman is judged on her accomplishments, and so she's not. <coughs> Another form of attribution bias is that men's and women's successes are often coded very differently. The, the social scientists literally call this the he's skilled, she's lucky pattern. Women's mistakes, excuse me, women's successes often tend to be discounted based on luck or some other outside cause. Men's successes are attributed to internal merit. Men's and women's mistakes are also in, often interpreted differently. Again, attribution bias. Women's mistakes tend to be noticed more and remembered longer. And then there's a, what's called in-group favoritism or leniency bias. And this is really important because this is when objective rules are applied differently to men and women. When objective rules are applied leniently to men but rigorously to women. This is actually from a series of studies that led up to gender bias bingo. There's an online game called Gender Bias Bingo that I invented. You can go to the, just Google Gender Bias Bingo, there's only one, and send me three stories that fit these patterns, and I will send you a t-shirt. This scientist ordered some equipment, who wrote, um, and she ordered it the way everybody else seemed to be ordering it. And then she was roundly chewed out because she hadn't followed the set procedures. And she, she wrote, I just saw five men do it exactly this way. So you notice how the objective rules were being applied rigorously to her, but leniently to the men. That's leniency bias. I don't know if you can see the cartoon. It's a punch cartoon. It says, that's an excellent suggestion, Ms. Trigg. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. This is what my daughter Rachel, my co-author on the What Works for Women at Work book, calls the stolen idea. It's when a woman mentions an idea, it's overlooked, a man repeats it, suddenly it's brilliant. And then finally, polarized evaluations. This affects um, professors, both from students and from colleagues. And it's a very major factor also in performance evaluation. Women superstars actually tend to get a little higher evaluations than male superstars who knew a woman could do it. I call it the Sheryl Sandberg effect. The problem comes with those of us who are merely excellent. 
because of these patterns of prove-it-again bias, those women tend to get sharply lower evaluations than the men, leading to these patterns of polarized evaluations. Okay, how do these patterns differ by race? That is the subject of the Double Jeopardy report. I hope you will check it out, just released today, and send it on to a few people who might be interested. Black women were much more likely to report prove-it-again problems than the other three groups of women, than whites, Latinas, or Asian Americans. Three-fourths of black women reported prove-it-again problems. And here's some examples from the report. This was from a scientist who attended yearly conferences in her field. And she said when she presented, it's not like I feel the audience doesn't necessarily believe my results but I have to defend it before I can even present it. I really don't feel that's just because I'm a female. I think that's secondary to my race. Black women were also different than the other three groups of women in attributing prove-it-again problems to race. The other three groups of women tended to attribute prove-it-again problems to gender. Here's another example. There's just no room for error, said another black um, woman to the extent that other folks might feel they can have a bad day, I never feel I have that luxury. So now uh, I want to go to the polling and ask, do you feel you have had to provide more evidence of competence than men in your workplace? I'm waiting for you folks to... We're up to 50. I know there are a lot more people on the line. I'm going to give you one more second to participate. I'm very eager to see, <clears throat> given that we have um, so many people on the line, whether the numbers that I have found in the two prior studies um, Seem to uh, seem to hold. Um, okay, let's um, leave it there. 84% um, of the people who answered the question um, answered yes that they do feel they've had to provide more evidence of competence than men. 16% of people answered no. I'm. Okay, here we go. Okay, let's go back to the PowerPoint. I'm not sure I know. Here we go. Okay, now one of the points of the What Works for Women at Work book is to provide you folks with some strategies for navigating successfully through these patterns. I want to stress these are individual strategies. They are not solutions. Solutions are to eliminate the gender bias in our environment. And I have articulated a new model for doing that in a recent Harvard, Harvard Business Review article. That new model is called Metrics-Driven Bias Interrupters. Um, that article, if you want to look it up, is called Hacking Tech's Diversity Problem. But today I'm going to focus on individual strategies that you can use in an environment that's not quite what we would want. First of all, there's what my daughter calls get over yourself. Um, if there are nine requirements for promotion, women tend to wait until they have 12. Men, meanwhile, are under a lot of pressure to, to show, to prove that there are men to be reckoned with. So they will barrel up with six. So women need to operate outside of your comfort zone often and go up when you are close, even if you haven't dotted every um, I and crossed every T in terms of the requirements for promotion. The second important strategy just makes sense. If you think about it, if people are going to tend to notice and remember your mistakes and overlook your successes, you've got to remind them. So it's very important to keep careful real-time records of all of your accomplishments and any objective metrics you spend the time to develop them. 
<clears throat> if someone gives you a compliment by email, forward it to your network. If somebody gives you a compliment uh, verbally, you go back to your office or lab, send them an email saying, you know, I was so flattered when you said X. Um, I'm really going to treasure that. Thanks a lot. You've made my day. And then forward that email to your network. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, um, it's really important to have a network, and this is the first example of why. And in fact, a specific type of network is helpful in overcoming prove-it-again problems, and that's what I call a posse. A posse is a group of both men and women, both people of color and white, at about your same level or a little bit above, who celebrate each other's successes. That's a way to get the word out and we'll learn more about why that's a particularly effective way. What if you're sitting in a room and you see men being judged on their potential, women on their performance? When you see that, you can just say very mildly, let's go back to the top of the pile. You know, I think we finally realized what we're looking for in this candidate. Let's just make sure we picked up every candidate that has it. Very mild-mannered way to intervene. How about if you're sitting in a room where you see the stolen idea? A woman repeats, a woman introduces an idea, she's ignored, man repeats it, he's brilliant. You can say very mildly, and I've been thinking about that ever since Pam first said it. Thought it was a great idea, you've added something important, here's the next step. These strategies are very mild-mannered strategies, and that's what we focus on in the book. Um, because most of us just don't want to spend our political points calling out gender bias. We have too many other ways to spend those points. And after all, men don't have to spend their points that way. Uh, what if this happens to you and there's nobody in your network to help? First of all, you should think about your network in that case. But you can again say, oh, thanks for picking up on that idea. You've added something important. Here's the next step. That's another mild-mannered strategy. We also have in the book what I call true moxie strategies. One of the women I interviewed when this happened to her said, is there an echo in here? Very delicious, very delicious, very fun, but um, maybe too costly for many of us in many contexts. Here's the second pattern. It, uh, we call it the tightrope. This again stems from lack of fit because scientists not only are assumed to be male, they are seen as, science is seen as requiring masculine qualities, being very direct, being very technical, analytical, um, no nonsense. All of those categories, um, single-mindedness, all of those things are coded as masculine in our culture. And so women find themselves walking a tightrope. Um, they uh, a tightrope between being liked but not respected if they behave in ways that are seen as too feminine or respected but not liked if they behave in ways that are seen as too masculine. Here are some too feminine problems. Women are expected to do the nice work. They're always expected to be nice and going around and attuned to other people's comfort levels. Um, you can see this when women are in mixed groups of men are women and women. Women in mixed groups tend to use tentative forms of speech, don't you think? And they tend to interrupt less than the men in those groups. Now, when women are in groups only of women, they don't do these behaviors which actually are behaviors that are performed by every subordinate group. Um, but women often are under pressures to behave in what are seen as suitably feminine ways, and that leads them, as Sheryl Sandberg points out, to not claiming a seat at the table. So if women aren't feminine and don't behave in feminine ways just for their own internal reasons, they're often under pretty intense outside pressures to do so. One of these pressures I call doing the office housework. Now, doing the office housework may be cleaning up the lab, maybe picking up the cups after a meeting, maybe always the one to take the notes. 
or it may be doing not work that's not administrative or scut work, but it is work that is undervalued in your context. So doing the slide deck so that the man can give the presentation, writing the more technical parts of the grant proposal and not being PI. Those are examples of office housework in the science context. Women also often are expected to play narrowly cabined feminine roles, to be the ever, and ever understanding mother to students, for professors, and to colleagues for many, many people. Or the dutiful daughter, the brilliant dutiful daughter who is brilliant but always looks up to her mentor. All of those are two feminine problems that women very commonly encounter. And in the What Works for Women at Work study, we found that these two feminine problems are twice as common as the two masculine problems. And here are the two masculine problems. If you're direct, outspoken, assertive, or competitive, then often you're seen as having a personality problem. If you're stern or you say no, then the immediate reaction is to call that woman a bitch, right? If you're a man, it's just a no. That was a scientist from a focus group. I call, sometimes call these the he's assertive, she's aggressive syndrome. Anger also is a key danger point for women. Showing anger tends to increase the perceived status of a man, but decrease that of a woman. Self-promotion is also a danger point for women. This comes from a woman who, felt, who found out she was getting about $200,000 less than a man very similarly situated. So she did exactly what she should have done. She went to the person in charge and said, I want to familiarize you with the value add I've brought to this organization, and she presented objective metrics. He looked at her and said, you think highly of yourself, don't you? Push back for self-promotion even stronger sometimes from other women than from men, but strong from both. Okay, here are some of the racial patterns that are documented in the Double Jeopardy report. Asian American women report more pressure to fulfill traditionally feminine roles and much more pushback if they don't. Um, Latinas reported being called angry or too emotional even when they said, I wasn't angry, I just wasn't deferential. Okay, let's go to the second question. Do you feel you've, that you have walked a tightrope between being liked but not respected or respected but not liked? Let's try to get up to an N of 500, folks. I'm a data person. You're going to make me happy by giving me a little bit of data. Whoops. Um, Aaron, something appears to have gone wrong. Okay, now we're okay. <coughs> I'm going to give you one more minute, so now is your time to make me a very happy woman this morning. Okay, uh, 30 more seconds. Let's get a few more people. Okay, so um, the 77% uh, of people who responded reported that they had encountered to, uh, they had walked the tightrope. That is exactly the same percentage, interestingly enough, as I found in my research. Okay, let's go for some, to some strategies for navigating this problem. First of all, important message, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. These tightrope strategies cha involve changing what, what you're doing in a way that may feel less genuine. So if what you're doing is working, just ignore them. On the other hand, if people don't seem to take you seriously, if you're getting with the office housework, or if you're getting pushback for having sharp elbows. <clears throat> First step is to be clear about how you present. You need to think not about what you are comfortable with, 
but about what they, your audience, typically of men, are comfortable with. Now, should we have to do this? No, we shouldn't. But the book is about what works for women at work, not about what should work for women at work. <clears throat> That's where the organizational change comes in. If you're getting stuck with large loads of office housework, there are two strategies depending on what type of housework it is. If you're getting stuck with scut work, administrative work, or um, <clears throat> cleanup, sort of literal housework, do it once, do it graciously, and then work behind the scenes to set up a rotation so that it's shared. If, how about if you're doing work that's important work, it's just dead-end work, it's not valued in your environment. Then the strategy is what we call the strategic no. The strategic no is that you go out and get highly valued work, and then you also go out and get a couple of those housework assignments that perhaps will help you build your network, offer you some value add. And then when the next got work assignment comes in, you say, I would love to do that, but I'm working on this important strategic initiative with Tim, so I don't have time. Here's the person who would be perfect for that. <clears throat> um, here's a strategy that concerns speech patterns. Women interrupt less than men. And in fact, this is again just a pattern that stems all subordinate groups interrupt less than men. So what if you're in a situation where you can't get a word in edgewise and you can't figure out how to insert yourself without being seen as a really witchy woman? You do what one of my informants called stepping on the end of a sentence. When he's almost done, you start to make your point. And if he doesn't stop, you just go, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were done. That's what I call gender judo. It's using a feminine stereotype that typically holds women back, but in a way that, to, that propels you forward. It's doing a masculine thing, interrupting, but in a feminine way. Oh, I'm so sorry. Another of these two feminine problems that women often face concerns body posture. The posture on the left, left is a typically feminine posture. And in fact, it's the posture that's used for all primates to signal subordination. It's taking up little space, and it's off balance. The posture on the right is, I call, doing the Don Draper, taking up a lot of space, very centered. That is the posture of dominance. One study shows that if you do the Don Draper, it literally, even for a few seconds, it literally increases your confidence level. Here's more gender judo. A uh, tech executive gave this advice. Be warm, Ms. Mother, 95% of the time. So you, the 5% of the time when you need to be tough, you can be, she said. Now, again, should women have to do this and not men? No, they shouldn't. But this is about what works. Every single woman at the CEO level I talked to did gender judo nonstop. Remember the posse? The reason that that is such a great strategy is that it allows you to blow your own horn and yet dodge the pushback for self-promotion. Because what's more socially appropriate than a woman celebrating the success of a man, but meanwhile, he's celebrating your success? Also, if you lead a team, a good way to self-promote is to praise your team, although make it clear that you, read, that you led the team. For anger, there's literally, from one of the studies, a formula. If I look angry, it's because I am angry, because you've jeopardized, and then insert shared business goal here. Message is, I'm not a raging it. I am angry because for a good and sufficient reason. Okay, let's go to the polling. Oh, we already did the polling. That's, we're now going to go through to the third pattern of gender bias called the maternal wall. 59% of the mothers who we, inter who we interviewed reported it. 
The maternal wall is an order of magnitude larger than the glass ceiling patterns we've talked about so far. If you give people identical resumes, totally the same, one but not the other, mentioning that the candidate is a mother, the mother is 79% less likely to be hired, only half as likely to be promoted, offered $11,000 less in salary, and held a higher performance and punctuality standards. The effect size here is truly staggering. <clears throat> um, on the other hand, um, so there are negative competence and commitment assumptions, very strong ones triggered by motherhood. There are also prescriptive bias, the should bias. Mothers who are seen as indisputably competent and committed, for example, in the, uh, in the lab all the time, really ambitious, are seen by women, not by men, but by women as less likable, and they're held to higher performance standards. That's part of the tug of war among women we'll talk about in a minute. There's also a lot of just really open bias against mothers. This is actually literally the comment of a woman, uh, woman's tenure, someone on a woman's tenure committee. Of course, that resulted in a lawsuit. You all know that's totally illegal to say something like that. More subtle but more common is benevolent prescriptive bias of like, I didn't consider this you for this promotion because I know you have two small kids. I know it's not a good time for you. Often it's kindly meant, but the bottom line is um, the message is the same. A good mother wouldn't be interested in the promotion. Um, maternal wall bias is an equal opportunity gender bias. All four groups of women reported it at about the same levels. The major difference came with Latinas, although this also showed up among Asian American women. Um, represented by this quote, one uh, biochemist said, every good Mexican woman has kid kids in their 20s. Like I told you, I'm not following the norm with my culture. I address that like anything else. It's like, it's my life. I will have kids when and if I want them. So again, that's from the Double Jeopardy report. Okay, now let's go to the polling. Now we're going to ask um, if have you experienced, if you are a mother, have you experienced bias against mothers? Now this will either be negative competence and commitment assumptions or comments that you're, since you're a mother, you somehow shouldn't be working hard <clears throat> um, or saying, oh, I know this isn't a good time for you because you're a mother. Uh, we have fewer participating. Obviously, not everyone is a mother. That's very, very characteristic of science PhDs. Um, only, if I remember correctly, about um, they have about a, a third um, of the incidence of having children of the of women in the general population. Uh, but uh, I'm sure there are a few more mothers, and I'm going to give them one more minute to participate. <coughs> Um, okay, so um, again, almost exactly the same as the interview study, 64% of the mothers reported prove it again bias. Remember, it was 59% in the um, interview study. Okay, let's go back to the slides. Here's some strategies for moms. One key is to counter bias with information. When you return from maternity leave, if you intend to pursue your career, say so. If you're willing to travel, say so. If you're the primary earner, say so. And if your partner is willing to follow you, say so. Because if you don't, people will make all the opposite assumptions. <clears throat> um, what if if somebody says to you something like, and these comments are really common, um, I don't know how you can work such long hours. My wife could never leave her kids like that. Then you just smile sweetly and use what I call the Tolstoy was wrong approach. This is from, if you've read Anna Karenina. You just say, you know, happy families aren't all alike. I'm sure that's right for her and for your family, but this is what's right for mine. And again, watch the tone. Um, wait until you're no longer completely annoyed with this totally out of line comment. Here's the final pattern. It's called tug of war. 
And tug of war is when gender bias against women fuels conflict among women. You can see that among the women interviewed, it was the least common pattern, uh, but more than a majority reported it. One important point is that it doesn't always happen. Women just aren't inherently catty. Uh, the older women faculty members here, one person told us, are very, always very encouraging, very helpful, and very kind. But here's where problems arise. Another woman said opportunities for women are very zero-sum. If one woman gets a prized position, another woman won't. And so it breeds a sense of competition. Often this is seen as the problem of some awful queen bee, but this is not the problem uh, the personality problem of an individual woman. The only problem with this, the, the woman here, is that she's ambitious and she understands that the way gender bias is operating in her environment is that she's going to have to compete with other women, so she does. Another common tug-of-war problem that's common in science is uh, that women often distance themselves from other women. To quote Marissa Meyer, the CEO of Yahoo, she said, I'm not a girl at Google. I'm a geek at Google. Now, remember, you notice how she's distancing herself from the out-group, girls, and identifying herself with the in-group, geeks. And the studies show that women who have experienced discrimination um, early in their careers tend to distance themselves from other women. Why? They're ambitious. It's politically savvy. It's not their personality problem. Again, it's a pass-through of gender bias in the environment. <clears throat> Here's another example. I call it the prove-it-again pass-through. Some women are tougher on other women. It's a tough world out there. This is what it takes to succeed here as a woman. You'll make us look bad if you're not twice as good as the man. I had to pay my dues. Why, don't, why shouldn't you? This is women passing through prove-it-again bias to other women. The tightrope is also passed through woman to woman. I call this the fight between, fights between the femmes and the tomboys. Here's an example um, from the bingo. I've seen lots of senior women behave that way, not only working long hours, but even adopting male mannerisms and being very aggressive. This is a younger woman looking up at a woman, um, uh, older women, and saying, they're tomboys, they're too masculine. Another example. I'm on a backlash mission, <clears throat> said another, uh, said a professor. I wear dresses. I bake cookies for my group meetings. I bring my child to class with me. I'm not going to compete as a boy because I'm not a boy. And these are often generational conflicts where women my age in our 60s, we took the only deal on offer. We assimilated into masculinity in a whole series of ways. Um, and the whole series of ways that often younger women find off-putting and distasteful. And then there are the mommy wars. Um, women my age often say, I worked full-time. I worked long hours my whole career, and my kids are fine. I don't know why you need that long maternity leave. Um, the, um, these fights between uh, um, uh, these mommy wars often, often sometimes play out between women who are child-free, women who are never wanted kids, and mothers, these mothers are just reinforcing stereotypes that women need special treatment. Or between mothers and childless, women who wanted kids but never had them. I had to make hard choices. Why should she have it all? Again, the answer is men have it all. Adults have it all. All people are asking for is both love and work, which is what has Freud pointed out is what most people want. The tug of war also often plays out between admins and professionals. <clears throat> um, here, this is from the Double Jeopardy report. There's an expectation from female staff that female supervisors will be more nurturing, will be more understanding, or for example, if they have to leave because of their families. Staff are less tolerant of women who are not like that. <clears throat> I think this often causes problems between female staff and female supervisors. And again, from the Double Jeopardy report, there's also often a, a racial dimension to this. 
um, one, one scientist said, there's this Mexican woman telling them what to do, referring to the admins. So this tug of war among admins and professionals sometimes takes on a, um, a quite disturbing racial dimension. <clears throat> um, okay. Uh, Last question, have you experienced the tug of war among women? This is something that's quite controversial to talk about. I've gotten hollered at quite a bit for talking about it, and it's a painful topic because we really hope women will support other women, and very often they do. But I think it's time to talk about the fact that sometimes they don't, and when they don't, it's often and typically a symptom of gender bias in the environment. <clears throat> so I will give you one more minute. Just again, uh, I'm a, a little bit of a scientist too, and what you're giving me here is some data. I really appreciate it. Okay, um, what we have is a, a little bit um, higher reports than I did from my interviews. 63% of women reported the tug of war. 37% of women said no, they'd never heard of it. Here are some tug of war strategies. First of all, it's important to recognize the limits of sisterhood. After all, do men always support men? That doesn't prove they're bitches. That just proves they're human. That just proves they're people. And I think it's important to keep our expectations um, reasonable. On the other hand, if someone is undercutting you, it's really important to confront them and to confront them in a non-confrontative way. Um, I have in the book a description from the, the, the top lawyer of one of the largest corporations in the country who had another woman who was undercutting her. And she asked for a private meeting with that woman and said, you know, it's my perception, and I may be wrong here, that we haven't always gotten off on the best footing. And if I've done something to offend you, I really would like to hear about it because it's my intention always to have a good relationship with you going forward. And so I'd like to clear up anything we need to clear up now. Um, so what's up? And there's literally a formula. Um, you might also want to read the book Difficult Conversations. What my informant did is basically use the Difficult Conversations format. She never had another problem with that woman again. Senior women, women my age, really need to remember that younger women's experience is simply different. They came online when there were uh, well, the, uh, let's say the opposite. When I came online, I was going into an overwhelmingly male profession, and I was usually the only woman in the room. That's not true of younger women. And so you get a much broader range of women who are entering these traditionally male professions. They're just not going to be like us senior women. They're going to be often a lot femier, and we need to accept that. That's actually a product of our success. On the other hand, junior women, you may have to recognize that senior women are not helping you as much as you think they should because they don't have as much power as you think they do. One of the findings of the What Works for Women at Work study is that senior women are navigating all four patterns um, all the way through their careers. I assumed that prove-it-again problems would be a young woman's issue but they're not. Many senior women have them as well. Not all, I don't, but um, many women do. So it, when the junior women look up to the senior women, often remember they're, some of them are ducks. They're battling, paddling really, really hard under the water. If you do have an unhealthy dynamic in your workplace among the women, get the women working together with other women, but not on women's issues, because then you'll lose the Marissa Myers who don't want to be associated with women. Do Habitat for Humanity or some other social service um, event uh, with other women. 
<clears throat> here's the book. Um, I really want to urge you to take a look at it. Uh, my daughter, it's my research. My daughter wrote it. She writes like a dream, says the proud mother. And um, also, please help me out. The Double Jeopardy report is out today. Please go to toolsforchangeinstem.org, download the report, and send the link to, if each one of you sends the link to three people, I will be tremendously grateful. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much, Joan. We actually have quite a few questions, so let's go ahead and jump in. Our first question today is, how do you define women of color? I have been told that women of color is only African American, but what about um, Native Americans, Asians, biracial, and other non-Caucasian women? It is not fair that these women are often overlooked and often more discriminated against. Um, well, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, I divided women of color in the Double Jeopardy report, and my co-authors, I should mention there, are Catherine Phillips of Columbia Business School and Erica Hall of the Business School at Emory. We divided women of color into three groups, um, black women, Asian American women, and Latinas. And the reason that we did that is to see if there were differences in the way um, those four groups of women, whites, blacks, Latinas, and Asian Americans, experience gender bias. And there are tremendous differences. Um, no one really has ever done this systematically uh, before. That's why I'm super excited about this report. I'll just give you one example. Black women actually are allowed to behave in more dominant ways than the other three groups of women. Although, of course, at a certain point, you're an angry black woman, and then God help you. But there's a lot more room there than there is for um, white women. Um, Asian American women have a lot less room to behave in dominant ways than white women. women. And that's the, the kind of finding that is a really fresh, new, original finding of the Double Jeopardy report. Our next question is, sometimes there is a gender bias from other women for not conforming to how they perceive a woman should behave. Sometimes women even try to sabotage another woman to be more successful. Um, the women can often be worse towards other women than men are. Why do you think this often occurs, and what strategies can you suggest? That is a classic tug of war. Um, that is, I think it occurs because of gender bias in the environment. And I've given several examples in the slides. If there's room for only one woman, of course the women are going to undercut each, uh, each other. That doesn't prove they're bitches. That proves they're ambitious. Um, also, all women are walking that tightrope between trying to be seen as not too masculine and so, so therefore bitchy and not too feminine and so therefore wimpy. And so it's very um, seductive for women to judge other women of, oh, she's too feminine. No wonder no one takes her seriously, or she's too masculine. No wonder nobody likes her. This again, it's a symptom of gender bias in the environment. And what if you're an intern? Don't they do a lot of quote unquote housework, or how do we know when we are doing too much? If you're an intern, housework is your job description. Now, um, keep in mind that um, if you're working, um, uh, for profit-making organization, the, uh, actually regardless of the kind of organization you're working for, the deal when you're an intern is that you do a lot of administrative and other sorts of um, ministerial work in exchange for getting job experience and building your network. So you shouldn't, if you're an intern, be getting 100% of that kind of work, but you're going to be doing most. That's most of what you're going to be doing. The office housework problem comes when women who are much more senior are expected to do the kinds of work that is properly the province of an intern. For example, uh, in the Double Jeopardy report, there was one Latina who said she was basically being treated by, the, by her, um, she was a science professor, she was being treated by her colleagues as an administrative assistant. Um, and expected to organize meetings, to fill out forms for them. That is just so far out of line. 
And are there pitfalls for women managers of women? After all, we've grown up in this lopsided system. Um, I'd love to hear more. Um, not um, that's a little. I'm not quite sure what the questioner is getting at. There are a lot of pitfalls for women managers. There's a lot of pitfalls for women at whatever stage. Some of the pitfalls for women managers are that as women become more senior, um, they often have to be really mindful that they're conveying not only messages of competence, but also messages of warmth and approachability. Because if you become more senior and more threatening, you may, depending on your environment, run into more what-a-bitch problems. Um, again, should women have to soften up? No, this is crazy. This is women um, basically conforming to gender stereotypes. Um, I, I think personally it would be a better world if both men and women had to soften up. But a world in which women have to do these things and men don't, that's, that's, called, that's called you know inequality. Um, nonetheless, you know, if you want to know what works for women at work, what works, is gender judo. So if you're a manager, um, to do it with warmth and do it with more empathy, even if the men around you are not doing that. The other thing I think it's important for managers just to self-reflect for a few minutes to make sure that they don't pass through prove-it-again bias and hold women to harsher standards because that's what it takes to succeed here as a woman. And reflecting one of the earlier questions, um, it's important to accept the fact that you know all women have these very complicated negotiations and relationships to masculinity and femininity. Uh, men can just kind of do the masculine thing, period, end of report. Women in many environments have to have a very complex um, mix of masculinity and femininity. Now, you can choose the mix that you want. There's a lot of tools in this toolkit. But it's really important for women not to judge other women as being too masculine or too feminine. Because um, you know we're along this continuum. If we're all judging each other, we're going to hold back all of us. Thank you. Our next question is, as a young woman about to start on her professional career and is very interested in higher power positions, I'm curious to hear what we can do to change these gender biases and work environments. Some high-powered women say that you must first get to the top to make changes in the environment. Are there other ways? Yes. Um, this is not women's problem. This is a problem of the organization. If you are running an organization that is not consciously interrupting these patterns of bias, these patterns of bias are playing out yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If you as an organization are interested in talent, are interested in the whole talent pool rather than half the talent pool, it is a business imperative for you as an organization to interrupt these patterns of bias. These are, this is the bias interrupters model of organizational change. Too often, organizations, when they say, oh my gosh, we're so concerned because we don't have more women, they have a woman's initiative, for example, and teach women to negotiate harder because women don't ask. Well, the reason that women don't ask is because they are on that tightrope. And women who do negotiate hard for starting salary tend to be disliked and are more like, less likely to be hired. Um, one, uh, uh, one study shows. So these women's initiatives, they are, they are a really great way of bringing women together. But too often they focus on kind of fix the woman problems. This is not women's problem. If you have gender bias in your environment, you need to analyze whether it exists, develop objective metrics to assess uh, and document whether it exists and how common it is implement a bias interrupter, and then measure to see if the metrics have improved. This is, this is what the Hacking Tech's Diversity Problem article in the Harvard Business Review um, suggests. And I would really urge people in your organization, 
I mean, look at the stati- look at the percentages we came up with for the percentages of you who are navigating through subtle bias day after day to bring the hacking text diversity problem Harvard Business Review article to the attention of um, high-level women or male allies. I think the strategy of waiting until we get enough women at the top is not a bad thing, but the fact is businesses should be tackling this problem the way they attack any other problem they actually care about, develop objective metrics, and hold themselves to achieving those. Thank you. Um, what can male SWE members or men in general do to best support their female colleagues? You know, I'm uh, in, on the Tools for Change in STEM um, website. This is not up yet, but it soon will. I am developing um, a one-hour training for actually for for men um, that will give them some individual bias interrupters ways they can interrupt bias in real time. This presentation has already suggested a couple. I mean, you if you are a man and you're listening to this presentation, first of all, I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Um, secondly, you can now spot certain forms of gender bias. For example, men being judged on their potential, women on their performance. And I've given you a way to intervene if that happens. You can now spot uh, if there's a stolen idea and I've given you exactly the formulation to use. And there are a lot of other formulations um, for intervening in gender bias in the What Works for Women at Work book. Um, but I also, uh, in conjunction with Lean In, <clears throat> will be doing a one-hour training to give men bias interrupters and um, based on Facebook's training, because Facebook's training is, is, is built around the bias interrupters model. And I would feel awkward sending a positive shout out to my network as it is not status quo. Do you have suggestions on how to begin this practice? Um, first of all, um, kudos for being politically astute. Um, <clears throat> you know, the way I would start, it out, start out is by carefully thinking about how to form your posse. Um, and um, actually two strategies I can think of. One is to go to a manager um, and say, I think this is, you know, I heard about this in a seminar. I think it's a really great idea. Um, what do you think? Um, <coughs> and seeing if you can enlist that manager as, a, um, as an ally in signaling that this is a good thing, good citizen thing to do. If there's nobody who you can think of to do that, um, you can just carefully form a network of people who are highly considered um, in your environment and who you trust and like and genuinely admire and start it. Um, and I would, I would actually have uh, uh, men or white people be doing, doing it the first three times, at which point you begin to establish um, a, a hopefully a social norm that will make it safer for other people to do. And do you recommend that women ignore a conversation about yourself or another woman that you're a part of? I'm sorry, I don't really understand. Of. Sorry, I don't really understand the question. You know, if somebody is ragging on another woman, I'm not sure. Actually, I don't understand the question. Maybe the, the questioner can send it in a little more clearly. Okay. <laughs> Our next question is: What do you think women who dress in a more masculine way, maybe? Um, non-gender conforming women can do to balance their gender presentation with their female gender identity so that people don't judge them and think that they dress that way just to get to conform to male norms in order to get ahead. You know, first of all, uh, it's important to point out that for some people this is non-negotiable. Um, for some um, queer people, it's totally non-negotiable. And if it's non-negotiable for you, it's non-negotiable. And you'll just um, you can use other softeners um, to accomplish the same goals. Uh, for some straight women, it's not negotiable. I mean, and it's funny, from the Double Jeopardy report, there were a lot of Latinas who taught a tremendous amount of, dis of discussion about clothing. 
And um, for some women, this is completely non-negotiable. Um, if it's negotiable um, for you, it, um, that it, you can um, you can either mix masculine and feminine in the way you dress, or you can do some other things that are expected of women. Um, for example, the chief softener that I use, you can tell that I'm you know, kind of direct, outspoken. I've had what a bitch problems in my life. And the what the softener that really works for me is my ability to connect empathetically with people very, very quickly. I have a little bit of that Bill Clinton gene. Um, and so you need to find something from the toolbox of femininity that feels genuine and authentic for you and combine it with those elements of masculinity because after all you know these are kind of dumb categories these are two ways of being human and the idea that only people with a certain body shape will have all of these characteristics and only people with a different body shape that's silly and most people if you give them a chance to think about it feel cramped by that Thank you. That's all the time that we have for questions today. Just as a reminder, today's webinar has been accredited with 0.1 CEUs. Everyone who attended today will receive a certificate of completion. I'd like to thank Joan for sharing her expertise with us. You will now see a post-seminar survey on your screen. Please take a few moments to give us your feedback on today's event. Um, we do use it to help us plan for future programming. Everyone who is registered for today's program will be emailed the links to the survey as well as a replay for the seminar. That does conclude today's program. You may now disconnect.